The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as you're seated, I want to, uh, again, welcome you here and um, invite you to pray with me now as we uh, begin to look at the Word of God that we have before us this morning. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we come before you and uh, we confess again that you are good. Lord, we want to praise you and thank you for the way that you bring life to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Father, that you give us hope in a future, that you make us new. Lord, that you are with us for the power of your Spirit. God, we have so many reasons to be thanking you and praising you together this morning. We've sung some of them. We're going to look in your word and see some more of them right now. And we just pray for help. Lord, because we realize that, that this project of bringing life from death is something that only you can do. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, you would help us this morning. Amen. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so we're going to jump straight into the passage. No uh, clever illustrations to, to start us out. Uh, not that mine are that clever, but you know what I'm saying. Um, we're going to jump right in. And we're going to start with just a word of context to catch us up to speed to what we are talking about this morning. What you remember is that in the last couple of passages that we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians, Paul's been arguing from identity to behavior. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul rebuked the Corinthians and he told them to remove the sexually immoral person from the church. That was a little while ago, several passages ago, you might not remember, but he did that because who they were as a church, their identity as a church, and what they were tolerating as a community, the behavior that was going on in the church went together like oil and water. They didn't mix this is a way that the behavior was incongruent with the identity. The Corinthians were these people that were recreated in Jesus Christ as a new humanity, forgiven of their sins, having the Holy Spirit working on their hearts, shaping them to become more like Jesus. And this wasn't supposed to be part of who they were anymore. From identity to behavior. And then in chapter 6, in our passage last week, Paul rebukes the Corinthians again because they were cheating and defrauding one another. And they were dragging one another out 
into the public marketplace in Corinth, what was called the Bema, the, the judgment seat, and having these very public legal battles as they sought to cheat and defraud and press charges towards one another in the church. And Paul's arguing with them. He's, he's rebuking them because who they are in Jesus Christ, their identity in Jesus, and what they're doing and their behavior have nothing in common. This is not to go together in this way. So Paul wants the Corinthians to grasp who God has created them to be so that they will live like they really are. Paul wants them to grasp who God has created them to be so that they will begin to live like they really are. And now in our passage, verses 9 to 11, which comes seamlessly from what came before it, we're just kind of going right on uh, in Paul's argument to the next thing that he says here. In this section, Paul summarizes what he's been saying about identity and behavior, and he summarizes all of this and has this incredible point declaring all that we are now in Jesus. How in the gospel we are new. So we're going to look at just two points this morning as we unpack chapter 6 verses 9 to 11. Who we were, point number one. And who we are, point number two. And as we do this, I have two things that I've been praying for you guys this week. And I have been praying for you this week. Number one, I've been praying that this passage would lead us to a genuine repentance for the things that, that are in our lives that have no place being in our lives because of who we are. That we would grow up as Christians into living like who we truly are already in Jesus Christ. And my second prayer has been that we become a people who are so confident in who God has already made us. We would have joy, that we would remember the good news of the gospel and celebrate what this incredible God has done for people like you and I to change us and to make us new. So look at verses 9 to 10 with me as we begin our first point, who we were. Paul says this, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a lot to unpack in this passage. We're going to go through the, the bad news, so to speak, first of who we, we were. But we need to start first as we look at this passage with the main idea. The main idea is simply this. Paul's giving a list of people characterized by their identity in such a way that this is who uh, they are and their behaviors, a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, maybe a better way of translating this would be a group of people who can't inherit the kingdom of God because this is who they are. And why can't they? Well, they can't because their behavior identifies them as those who reject God's kingdom. And those who live in rebellion to God's kingdom cannot inherit God's kingdom. You can't simultaneously live in rebellion to God and then hope to one day live in the eternal rule where you're submissive and rejoicing in the rule and the reign of God. 
And the kingdom that they don't inherit, it's something that is worth inheriting. To inherit the kingdom is this glorious thing in Scripture. To be part of God's work of renewing a broken and sinful and dead world. There's this wonderful, famous passage at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. I'm going to read for you in just a second. It talks about the way that when God's work is complete, this is what it's going to be like in his kingdom. John, the apostle, writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Notice how wonderful the description is in all the bad stuff being gone, but how important the description is in, in the presence of God being there with us, us as his people, he as our God. You see, living under the reign of God in his kingdom, it requires that we admit before God that the ways that we've been living to try to find life, to try to find happiness, that they're not working out for us. It begins by admitting that God, the way that I'm trying to rule my life, is just not cutting it. My path is a dead end. To belong to God's kingdom, we must be changed from those who rebel against God's rule to those who embrace God's rule over our lives. You know, Jesus talked about this when he was on the earth too. He spoke in a parable in the book of Matthew about the, the kingdom of heaven. And in this parable, this, this story, this way of illustrating what the kingdom of heaven is like, he describes the kingdom of heaven like this giant wedding feast. You know, a wealthy person inviting everybody over to celebrate a wedding. And he describes the way that after the first guest refused to come to that wedding when they were invited. And that's a reference to the way that Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people during his day. And how after that happened, that then the invitation went out to everyone far and wide. Come, come to the kingdom, come to the feast, come celebrate the banquet. And then at the end of the parable, Jesus says these words. Matthew 22 verses 9 to 13. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Christ said, To belong to God's kingdom, we must be clothed for the banquet. To belong in God's kingdom, we must be changed from those who rebel against God and his rule to those who joyfully love and obey God. See, as Paul reminds the Corinthians of the various sorts of rebellion that disqualifies someone from God's kingdom, he begins with a category that is most inclusive of all the things that he talks about. He says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, to be unrighteous is simply not to do what is right as defined by God. 
not as defined by you, not as defined by the, the friends that you hang out with, not as defined by the society in which you live, but as defined by God. And apart from God's salvation, Paul's really clear here and elsewhere that everybody is unrighteous. This is an inclusive category. Everybody is included in what Paul is saying here. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, in another place, Paul writes this. He said, For all have sinned, for all are unrighteous, and have fallen short of the glory of God. See, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And look, I realize that this is going to begin as a, as a heavy message. And I realize that if our, our mission at Christ City Church is a little bit more on point, we'd have done some more consumer research before we, we taught this passage. Right? And we do a little consumer research. We find out that conversations about sin and unrighteousness, right, they're just not the way to grow the church. Right? This is not the way to, like, we're going to, you're going to put these signs out on the, on, on the street corners and people are going to come and hear a message about sin and unrighteousness. That's insane. What are you talking about? Right? There's a, a sense that we, we want to eliminate talk about sin and unrighteousness because we know it's not what people want to hear. But I want to, I want to say this to you. The gospel isn't our product to sell. And we don't need to market it. All we got to do is put the gospel on the shelf so people can see it. See, God doesn't care about what offends our culture. He cares about what can save you from an eternity where you're separated from him. He cares about reconciling sinners into relationship with himself. In Christ City, there isn't good news for anyone without first talking about sin and repentance. Just consider Paul's life. He's, he's example, he's exhibit A for why this is true. It's because Paul, if you guys don't know much about Paul, I'll tell you something about him. He wrote 13 of the 27 books in the second half of the Bible called the New Testament. It's a pretty significant number. He planted churches throughout Asia Minor and the Roman world and was used by God to begin a revolution the likes of which the world has not seen since as Christianity overturned the cruelty and horrors of the pagan ancient world and has forever changed the world in which we live. And yet, how do you think Paul thought of himself apart from God's grace in his life? Do you think he thought of himself, Paul the Apostle, Paul the Revolutionary Catalyst, Paul the Bible Writer? No. In an intimate letter to one of his closest disciples, Timothy, he wrote this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. See, Paul thought of himself first as sinner, saved by the goodness and the kindness of God. To recognize who we are as sinner apart from God's grace is always the beginning 
of the good news of Jesus. I want you to look again at verses 9 to 10. As Paul reminds the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, because the Corinthians were being deceived about their sin, he couldn't just talk to them in general categories. He had to be specific about it, right? Because as human beings, and we do this too, we're always trying to smuggle our sin through the back door of the kingdom of God. We're always trying to do it. We, we love our sin so much. And, and there's times and moments in our lives when someone needs to get specific for us and say, look, brother, sister, this behavior is not appropriate for who you are in Jesus Christ. Do not be deceived, Christ City. Paul now gets specific. And first he says, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. To be sexually immoral is to use your body sexually in ways that God did not intend it for. And the Bible, his teaching is clear that his purpose, his good purpose for the creation, for us that, we, that he's made, is that we'd reserve sex for marriage between one man and one woman, and you have to add, who are married to one another. You see, sex is for our joy. It's for our good. It's a, a means of blessing God uses to, to grow families, for us to fill this world with the image of God. And anything outside of this is called sexual immorality in the Bible. So let me be clear. If you're holding on to sexual and moral fantasies, if you're holding on to sexually immoral behaviors in your lives, today is an opportunity to repent because of who you are in Jesus. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I want to add here, we want to help you. Not just here, but with anything that we're talking about this morning. We want to be a church where we as elders, where your community group leaders and your friends who are mature in their faith around you want to help one another grow in Christ-likeness. Most of these difficult battles that we face as Christians, they're not battles that we can win alone. But God's given us a church, so I just want to encourage you to reach out. Paul goes on though, he says, neither the idolaters will inherit the kingdom of heaven. An idolater is just someone who lives for or who loves or who worships something other than God. Only the God of the Bible, who's the creator of all things, is big enough and weighty enough and glorious enough to command the whole weight and scope of your life. You're created to live for him, to love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind and strength. When we don't do that, when we let something else creep in and, and command our lives and take over, that's called idolatry in the Bible. So Christ said, let me just ask you, who do you serve this morning? What is your wallet and your calendar and your hopes and your dreams about life tell you about who it is that you are really serving? Next, Paul says, neither the adulterers. We've already covered that in the sexually immoral piece and talked about being married to one another. 
So we'll move on. Neither men who practice homosexuality, Paul says. And I know that you heard in this passage, we first read it, blah, 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 blah. Homosexuality, blah, 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 blah. I know that's what happened. And we are going to deal with this because it's such an important topic today in our own society. But I also want to recognize it's just part of what Paul's saying. This is not a sermon about homosexuality. But we're going to address it. Christ City, we need to not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Today, there are a minority of scholars and a minority of Christians, primarily in a minority part of the world, namely a Western European part of the world, by the way, where a battle is being waged to turn the tide on what God has clearly forbidden in his word. Some argue this passage only forbids exploitive homosexual acts, but nothing else. But the two words that are used and translated practice homosexuality, there's two things that are named here. They're very clearly depicted as both the dominant male partner and a submissive male partner in a homosexual relationship. And the words that are, that are used in Greek, the malakoi and the arsenokoitai. And Paul's going out of his way to make it explicit in this passage that homosexual behavior, period, is against the good commands of the God of the Bible. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The consistent interpretation by the majority of Christians who've read the Bible for 2,000 years in all parts of this world is that God only permits sexual expression according to his good creational design between one man and one woman married to one another. Everything else is sexual immorality according to the Bible. And if you're going to rebuttal, because you're like, yeah, sure, majority of Christians, but Brent, Christians got it wrong about slavery. If that's on your mind, as I know is commonly said today, that there's, this is an argument that's often made when we talk about these things. I want to point out, and I'm going to just say this gently, but, but I'd love to talk to you about it more, that actually, if you believe that, your history about slavery is also wrong. Some Christians in some places, in a small window of time, have indeed argued for slavery from the Bible. And they were wrong. But throughout the history of the church in this world, it has been uniquely Christians who labored to turn the tide against slavery, both in the ancient Roman world, by the way, and then at times, in history throughout then, up until the modern-day abolition movement. So don't be deceived by people making convoluted and complex arguments to try to get out of what the Bible clearly teaches. And also don't be deceived about what God is really like. I think there's a way that we, we look at these passages and the accusation is that God is just a big, mean, homophobic deity in the sky. That's who God is. But it's not. He's none of those things. The God of the Bible is a good God who loves his creation, who knows what's for our good even better than we know it. His commands are for our good, including this one. And this is easy to illustrate. And it's not going to be enough to satisfy if you're really grappling with this, but let me start. There are few desires in our lives that we have 
that we as mature people know that, that we can pursue all inhibitions aside and that it will lead to our good. Right? What else in our life, what desires in our life are there that we constantly have to bring in check? I mean, I have to bring in check my desire for food, my desire for drink, my desire for selfishness, my desire for, I mean, on and on and on. The list goes on all the time. To believe that, that just following our desires wherever they might lead will be good for us is in fact, I think, just foolish. And we know that from other areas of our lives as well. It's a big topic. I'm just touching on it right now. I'd love to grab a coffee with you. Um, I'd encourage you, if you, you know Jonathan or Doug or Alvin here at the church or your community group leaders well, and you want to talk about this more, then talk about it with them. We want to have conversations on these important issues. We want to have conversations, but I would also like to help you out with some specific resources that I would encourage you to read. So I'm going to give you a list of books right now. <laughs> they're, they're great books. Uh, if you have some questions, they'd be helpful. Um, the first one is a very short book. It's first because it's short, it's concise. It's called Is God Anti-Gay? It's by a British man named Sam Albury. He's a man who... Um, who uh, understands himself as a person who is wired or struggles with having same-sex attractions as part of the course of his life. So he's someone who has a personal testimony about choosing, even though his desires are one way, to live according to the good commands of the Bible. That's his testimony. And he writes with eloquence and clarity about all that it means to be a Christian man who's choosing to follow God in this way. It's another short book called Gay Girl, Good God. I've recommended it before. I really love this book. Um, Jackie Hill Perry is an African-American woman, um, and her conversion story is the way that God saved her out of uh, a lesbian lifestyle. It's also a testimony, and it's also this beautiful story about how God has worked in her life in this powerful way to cause her to live according to the Word of God. Another book like this one's called Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. I also really like Rosaria Butterfield. We use her hospitality book uh, in our community group training here at Christ City Church. Um, this is her testimony as an elite uh, literature professor in an Ivy League school and a lesbian and how God converted her and saved her. It's a powerful story. She's a very, very good writer. It's a little bit longer, but I think you'd enjoy it. Another book that I recently read is called Born Again This Way by Rachel Gilson. Another testimony and a helpful book uh, to, to give to you guys as well. And then if you're wrestling with what the Bible actually teaches and you want to unpack specific passages, there's an excellent reference you could use called What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung. And I'd recommend that to you as well. All right. Paul doesn't dwell on homosexuality and we're in danger of having dwelt on homosexuality. So we're going to go on. Nor thieves, he says. It is part and parcel of being a sinful human being to selfishly live in such a way in this world that we advantage ourselves at the expense of others. And we take what doesn't belong to us in various ways, whether it's our timesheets, whether it's out and out stealing, whatever it might be. But Paul's clear, the behavior of thieves is not a behavior, not an identity that is congruent with being in the kingdom of God. And he goes on, nor the greedy. Ouch. <laughs> right? This list is hard-hitting for everyone, I, I warned you. See, we live in Vancouver. This city is full of greed. 
We are greedy for more and for more things. We are greedy for more and more experiences, more and more money, more and more stuff from me. And Paul says the greedy will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is hard hitting. There is opportunity for us to repent here. Is your life characterized by generosity and thankfulness and contentedness in the Lord? Or is it characterized by greed? Paul goes on, nor the drunkards. What do you run to when you are tired? Right now in pandemic times, I'm seeing lots of news articles that are very concerned about the things that we are running to when we are tired, when we are anxious. We drink to cope and we often drink too much. See, alcohol is a good gift to be used in moderation, but are we using it in moderation? Or are we using it as the crutch to get us through the day, looking to it for comfort that only God can give? Paul continues, nor the revilers. Revilers are abusive, angry people. They're people that spout out of the mouth hurtful and angry, harmful words. And sometimes what they speak with their mouths ends up coming out on their hands and their, their feet and their bodies in action. There's no shortage of revilers today. It's a time of conflict and reviling is normalized. But Christ City, it's not to be normalized among us. It's not who we are. Nor the swindlers. Again, that's just another word for thief, someone who robs and cheats and steals. See, Paul says, all of these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, Corinthians. This sort of person will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. But I want you to take a deep breath now and look at what Paul says in verse 11 as we consider our second point, who we are. This is who we were. We look at who we are. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but, but not anymore. You were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of Jesus. See, if your hope and trust is in Jesus this morning, you're not going to be a perfect person. We know that. If your hope and your trust is in Jesus, it's still going to be true that you're going to need to confess and repent as part of the, the, the course and the actions of your life now as a Christian in an ongoing way. Maybe you need to repent of things right now that happened this morning. But if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, then God has worked a miracle of his Holy Spirit to give you life, to make you new, to cause you to love God and want to obey him where before you didn't want anything to do with him. See, we aren't rebels of God's kingdom anymore if we trust in Jesus. We are beloved sons and daughters and heirs of his eternal kingdom. Praise God. 
So this radical change from rebels of God to obedient lovers of God, it's something that the prophets in the Old Testament, that they talked about, something that they looked forward to, that they knew that God would do when the Messiah came, when Jesus Christ came. And when God's own people, Israel, were so dead in their sins that they had rejected him over and over and over and over again, he gave them a hope that it wouldn't always be this way in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. I'm going to read it for you. He said, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what God has done for the Corinthians. Christ City, this is what God has done for you. And Christ City, this is what Paul describes with three incredible and beautiful words in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, number one. You were sanctified, number two. And you were justified, number three. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Let's talk about this. First, Paul says, you were washed. Each of these verbs in Greek, by the way, is a completed action. It's what God has done. It's been finished. You can think of Jesus on the cross when he uttered those incredible words. It is finished. If you trust in Jesus this morning, this work is finished for you. You have been washed. And the imagery of washing in the Bible is long and rich. See, long before Jesus came to earth, God taught his people that to enter his presence, they must undergo a cleansing and a purification. And the reason for that is because sinful human beings cannot stand in the presence of God. In Isaiah 59 verse 2, uh, the prophet talks about the way that your sins have made a separation between you and your God. That sin separates us and breaks our relationship with the holy God. And God instructed his people, you must be washed. The Bible described ritual cleansing with water, but also with the sprinkling of the blood of a sacrificial animal. You can look back to the book of Leviticus if you want to learn more about this. And also let me commend to you an organization called the Bible Project. You can find them on YouTube. And they do these wonderful summaries of the books of the Bible. Watch the one about Leviticus and you'll see all this talk about the purification that happened. So what happened was that these ancient priests of God, if they wanted to enter the temple of God or stand in the presence of God or minister to the people of God, they had to be purified from all the things that defiled them. But Christ City, what can truly cleanse us of our sins? A little bit of goat's blood? A little bit of water? Think back on your own life. What could really take away the guilt and the shame and the stain? I know it's there. I know you are feeling this. What can really take away the guilt and the shame and the stain of the sin in your life? See, in the book of Revelation, we get the answer. 
there, the Apostle John, he describes our Christian purity and our washing this way. He talks about Christians who've washed their robes and made them white. The filthy, dirty robes of your life in sin. And they've been purified and made white in the blood of the Lamb. In the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you, his death counting for your death. And in another place, John writes, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, the only thing that can wash you is what God has already freely offered you. It's the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, who's died in your place for your sins that you can be forgiven and welcomed into God's presence, purified and made new. Christ City, I was trying to think of how to illustrate this and my mind kept going back to our baptisms at Christ City Church. I think baptisms are the best way to illustrate this as a community. I love our baptisms. We do them twice a year. We go out to Kitts Beach uh, on, on Easter Sunday and the second week or the third week in September on Sunday as well. We go out into the water and we have this beautiful moment where together as a people, as a church, we look at and we rejoice in the way that God is washing someone new. How this outward symbol of them being buried with Jesus in the water, so that they can rise up out of death with Jesus into newness of life with the water, washing them and dripping them, cleaning them, making them new. How it symbolizes the way that we are made new in Jesus, washed forever by his blood and brought into new life. These are such special moments for us as a church because we know these people and we've been watching the way that God's been changing them for the last several months and years. And we celebrate what God's already been doing as we watch this symbol unfold in this way in our baptisms. And right now, I want you to dig deep into this gospel hope that you've been washed I want, it to, I want it to land on you. I want you to, to open your heart. I'm praying that God would open your heart right now to receive this and to know it for you, for you. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the things that once characterized you and that fill you with grief and with shame about who you are. I want you to know that Paul says, you were washed. Not you are being washed and one day God might finish the work. You were washed. When God saved you, there was no stain that was too deep that his blood couldn't reach it. When God saved you, there was no blemish that he couldn't remove. When God saved you, there was no sin in your life that was too polluting that he couldn't purify you. And if you trust in Jesus to save you right now, God has washed you and it is done and it is finished. But second, Paul says, you were sanctified. And to be sanctified in this context is to be dedicated to something for a specific purpose. So we're going to have hopefully finally one illustration to break up this very heavy message. In my house... <laughs> We have a toothbrush that has been sanctified. 
It is a toothbrush that is consecrated to a specific purpose. And woe to the person that transgresses the consecration rules for my toothbrush. Because this toothbrush cleans our toilets. It is a toothbrush dedicated to something specific. For those of you familiar with systematic theology, something that we talk about in the Bible when we describe different things, try to put the piece of the Bible together and label it with categories, you need to be clear that we're not talking about being progressively sanctified in this passage. That's not what we're talking about at all. See, Paul's talking about the way that when God saved us, he did something incredible. See, when God saved us, he set us aside as his own. These are mine. This one belongs to me. See, when God saved us, he said that he is our God, that we are his people. And this is such good news that now as Christians, we've been consecrated to belong to God. So this incredible, joyful news, it's so good. It's what we've been talking about when we read question one in the Heidelberg Catechism. Because the first question that these old people thought when they made this catechism that they needed to encourage the church with was who they've been consecrated to, who they now belong to. Question one goes at this. What is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own. <laughs> but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your hope, Christ City, that you've been sanctified. You see, you used to belong to this world. You used to serve yourself and your sin. You used to be trapped by Satan and slavery to an old way of living. And now Paul says in passages like Colossians 1 verse 13, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and he's transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. If you trust in Jesus this morning, you belong to him, period. And if you belong to him, he's not going to stop loving you. If you belong to him, he's not going to stop taking you back when you come to him in repentance. If you belong to him, he's going to bless you, continue the work that he's begun in you, and bring you into his kingdom exactly like he's promised you. Christ said, You are sanctified. And third, Paul says, you were justified. See, to be justified is to be declared by God to be righteous. See, he is the judge and there will be a final judgment. And one day everyone will stand before him and he will judge them. To be justified, like Paul's talking about here, it's to have the verdict, not guilty, innocent, righteous, declared over you now by God. Not because you somehow earned it, 
not because you impress God by, what, by your resume of good works in your life, but because you've trusted in Jesus to save you. Because Jesus' death in your place counts for you in the death that you deserve. Because Jesus' perfect life of obedience counts in your place for the life of disobedience that you've lived. And on the basis of the way that God gives all of this to you and you trust in Jesus, he says to you, you are not guilty. So Christ City, are you feeling condemned this morning? I know some of you are. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're not condemned. If you're trusting in Jesus, God says to you this morning, is I will not forgive you. Sorry, that's the wrong way. I will not condemn you. You get really misspeak sometimes when you're preaching. But God does, he speaks these words through his word that he will not condemn you. That he will forgive you. And if you're feeling like you're just not good enough this morning, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ City, you are. You're already righteous in Jesus. And God's declaring over you, this one is righteous because she trusts in Jesus, my son. This one is righteous because he trusts in Jesus to save him. Christ City, you have been justified. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11 again. And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus, uh, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, and two things, in Jesus' name and by the Spirit of God, he's worked a miracle in your life. See, the name of Jesus is authority. It's power. It's salvation. And the Spirit of God at work in this world is life from the dead. Here's the reality. You can't save you. I can't save you. But the Spirit of God in the name of Jesus can save you. I feel like this is a lesson that God is ramming down my throat every single day for the last several months. And it's such a good lesson and it's one that I need to learn. That God is the God who is presently at work at Christ City Church. Not me, not you, but God himself by the power of his Holy Spirit. And when he's at work, he brings life from death. And Christ City, right now, he is bringing life from death. I wish I had time to tell you all the stories of the ways in the last two months or even three months that God is bringing life from death here in this congregation. As he washes us, as he sanctifies us, as he justifies us, as a gift of his grace. See, our identity shapes our behavior. So who are you this morning? Are you someone who is unrighteous and hasn't yet put your trust in Jesus to save you? Or are you someone who's trusting in Jesus to save you? And who's been washed 
who's been sanctified, and who's been justified. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the Spirit of our God. This passage isn't teaching us that we have to be a perfect church by working harder and trying more. This passage is Paul's way of teaching us to live as we already are. To rejoice and celebrate and worship with all of our hearts like we're going to do in a second. Praising God that we're not who we used to be. But he's reached into our lives and he's saved us. This passage is teaching us to continue to live lives of repentance. All right, our goal here, our goal isn't that we somehow make ourselves perfect. Our goal is that we live lives of faith in Jesus that are full of repentance. Day by day by day as we turn again to trust him. Because you are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified. And I want to say this to you. If you are someone who's not yet trusted in Jesus, you can. God can wash you and save you and justify you this morning. All you have to do is turn to him and say, God, I, I can't do it. The ways I've been trying to, to make this work out in my life, they're not working. And I'm going to call it sin. And label it for what it is. The ways that I've been running from you. It's sin and God, I'm repenting of it. I want to turn away from it. And I want to trust that you've done something to save me that I can't do for myself. So once you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, Paul says that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the ruler of all, when we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, that he will save us. We can call out to him and he'll save us. So God is not against you. God is mind-bogglingly for you. Remember that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, I just pray that you'd use these fumbling words of mine to work by your Spirit to cause your Scripture, the word that you wrote, to be impressed upon human hearts. Lord, I pray that you would comfort those that are burdened and condemned and full of shame. I pray that you'd comfort them with the good news of what you've already done for them in Jesus. Lord, for those that are afraid to confess and to repent, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to great faith and hope in you to continue again to confess and to repent. Lord, for those that don't yet know you, as a good and gloriously wonderful God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to see who you really are. Lord, show us your goodness in Jesus. Now, as we conclude our message, but as we have our communion celebration together, as we worship together, as we pray together, would you continue to show us your goodness? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite